Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha and welcome to the Future Accords. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt. Today we're here with Jan Dukovic, the Connie Kaplan Postdoctoral Fellow in the Political Science Department at Johns Hopkins University. Jan, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'm really excited to be talking about the future of meat, agriculture, and food technology today. Uh, and you have some really exciting experiences uh, writing with Jacobean, The Guardian, Washington Post, NPR, Wall Street Journal, and now here at KTUH, so it's such an honor. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I'm excited. You gave a fantastic talk at the Department of Political Science here at the University of Hawaii, and today you're about to give a talk uh, at the Convention Center. Can you, can you tell us what that is? Uh, yeah, so I'm actually heading down in about an hour and a half to give a talk at the American Studies Association annual meeting, and I'll be talking about similar things that I talked to here at UH, which is thinking about the potential impacts of cellular agriculture on... Uh, the American food value chain and on the way Americans produce and consume food. Well, we're honored to have you here before that. So thanks. Uh, thanks again. Um, before we dive into that, I'd love to learn more about your background. How did you get into this work and what is your educational uh, background? Like a lot of academics, I came to this work uh, really circuitously. I was born in Poland during the waning years of socialism I came up, uh, I grew up between Warsaw, which is the capital city, and a small farm that my grandparents had outside Warsaw. So I came up around organic, very small-scale farming that included animals and vegetables. Fast forward many years, I my undergrad is in business and econ. I then worked in the media for a long time, and then I got a master's in politics when I lived in New Zealand, focusing on environmental politics. And so I came to study food and to studying specifically animal agriculture really through initially caring about environmental issues, caring about ocean conservation, um, slowly becoming interested in animal rights. And through the through my interest in animal rights, through my interest in environmental issues, I saw that there were very few people studying this, in, especially in political science, but in academia in general, outside of, uh, let's say, normative ethics. So you have all these n normative ethical arguments about animal agriculture, but you have very little political or political economic analysis. So when I decided to do my PhD, I knew going into the PhD that that was something that I wanted to focus on. Yeah, so I did my PhD at the New School for Social Research in New York City. I had an incredibly, incredibly supportive uh, committee who really gave me a long rope to do whatever it is that I wanted. And I ended up doing my dissertation project, which is now my soon-to-be-done book project. The project tries to show what kind of politics lead to our current status quo conventional animal agriculture and what steps the animal agriculture complex takes to normalize its practices and defend itself from critique. So how it engages with legislation, how it engages with PR and advertising, how it engages with animal rights activists, and how it engages with new products. 
And how did you first get interested in agriculture and that type of food conservation? Where did you learn about those those issues uh, from from a firsthand experience? Yeah, so I went into my I went into my PhD wanting to know how it is that you have this industry that does about two hundred billion dollars of business in the U.S. By their own estimation, the total economic contribution of meat to the American uh, GDP is about a trillion dollars, if you believe the North American Meat Institute. And I wanted to know what makes this thing run. How does an industry that kills close to 10 billion animals every single year, how does it normalize its practices? How is it possible for there to be an industry that's almost entirely hidden from the public, both physically and perceptually, to be selling a product to everyday Americans who eat about 220 pounds of meat each year that normalizes what would otherwise be completely unthinkable levels of violence against animals that uses and exploits cheap labor that externalizes and has really serious effects on the environment, both in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also local things like um, effluent spills into waterways, like nuisance to do with odor. So I basically wanted to know how this how this industry operates, what it does to make it possible. How is it possible that this is a giant industry just churning out masses of meat and selling extremely cheap meat to the American consumer? And what I found was that almost no one was looking at this, right? People look at food and they either look at the point of consumption or they look at the point of production or people make very broad ethical normative claims about the whole thing. So you have all this animal rights literature, which is people arguing like, do animals have rights? Are there duties we owe them? And so on. You have people who've done extremely good ethnographic work at animal production facilities. So people have done work on farms and at slaughterhouses. But short of more, uh, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but short of more poppy work like Schlosser's Fast Food Nation, you don't have much work that actually tries to get at the real political economic mechanisms of what the industry does. And so I saw, I guess in uh, economic jargon, I saw a gap in the literature, and that's what I chose to study. And so I spent three years during my PhD research, and then about another year after researching the meat industry and, and uh, yeah, and finishing my book manuscript. Amazing. Well, what has been your methodology for, for studying this seemingly hidden industry, but such a behemoth? Yeah, that's a good question. So I relied on multi-method research, which involved everything from looking at uh, policies and bills and laws supported by the industry to looking at advertising materials and public relations materials through doing multi-sided ethnography at sites throughout the food value chain. So I've spent time, I've been to farms, I've been to slaughterhouses, I've been to state fairs, I've been to commodity brokerages, I've dealt with people who do PR and advertising, I've dealt with people in high finance and banks who are related to animal agriculture. So really trying to bring to bear the full toolkit of qualitative research methods available to us social science researchers to really try to understand how different people at different um, spots in the value chain understand what it is they're doing and how they how it is that they try to extract profit from the industry so how is it that a farmer makes money off the mass production of animals how is it that a slaughterhouse makes money off the production of animals. How is all of this tied into the market for futures, right? For agricultural futures. 
how are PR people and advertising people trying to create a market or create specific discourses about the industry? So this is what I wanted to understand: is how do you make how do you make money off the industrialized making and taking of animal life? And have you found similarities across different countries, or do you have more of a, a U.S. focus for this? Um, my focus is primarily on the U.S., almost exclusively on the U.S. But one thing that I've found is that the U.S. model, which I'm happy to explain in a second, but the U.S. model of producing animals, which is industrialized confinement agriculture predicated on a economies of scale model. So what um, the scholars Jason Moore and Raj Patel call a cheap meat model of production really had its genesis in the United States for a number of reasons that I can explain, but is increasingly being exported. And by exported, I mean both the model itself and also specifically American companies going abroad and acquiring foreign companies and trying to establish or mimic the American model. And conversely, uh, companies abroad that want something like the American model, that want to import it, have also bought major American companies. So for instance, you have uh, the Brazilian meat giant, JBS, making investments in the US. You have uh, a company formerly known as Shanghui, now 4H, which is a Chinese meat production company. It took over Smithfield Foods in 2013. It was the largest corporate takeover of an American corporation by a foreign national. It was a $4.7 billion takeover, which is insane money. I mean, the biggest takeover in American history was for a Virginia-based company that makes hams. And why is that? It's because global demand for meat is rising and it tracks, almost perfectly tracks, rising GDP. There are a number of reasons for this, both the affordability of meat and meat is seen as a status symbol and the fact that it's available en masse. So the American model of producing animals, which is huge quantities, super standardized quality, not necessarily the highest quality, but standardized quality, cheap cost, is going international and is becoming the de facto model slowly is becoming the de facto model of meat production globally. Has that changed in the last few decades, or have have we always produced food in this way? No, we haven't. So in the United States, there's a very long history that I don't have time to get into, but I strongly recommend books like William Cronin's um, Nature's Metropolis and uh, Joshua Specht's Red Meat Empire that just came out that tell a very rich a uh, very rich history of the role of meat and agriculture in creating the American state. But the long story short is that meat production was regional and local. And this was both because of the way the industry was organized historically and also because of the technology available, right? So if you're raising cows and you slaughter them for meat, how far can you sell them in the absence of long-range transportation, refrigeration, et cetera, et cetera? So you're going to sell locally. This isn't to romanticize the local, but the point is that there are local economies of meat, which also control scales. You can have very large ranches, but they don't sell very far. This starts changing um, in the late 19th century when the sort of industrial barons of Cincinnati, uh, once known as Porcopolis, and Chicago, once known as the hog butcher to the world, they start centralizing animal slaughter, which is to say animals are raised on farms, drovers drive them into cities, and the animals are killed on 
what was called then a disassembly line. So a sort of proto fortis assembly line, only in reverse with the animals being killed. What this did is it introduced sort of uh, assembly line work. So individual low-skilled workers doing repetitive tasks many times as and working on disassembling the animal as it moves down the line. What this allows is it allows the local high-volume, cheap production of meat in one place. So you have all the standardized meat. Then this tracks onto the development of railroad systems and especially refrigerated railroad cars, which were a major technological breakthrough, which then allows for the standardized meat to be shipped extremely long distances to increasingly urban consumer bases, right? So all of a sudden you have people in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, who are able to buy standardized steaks that were slaughtered in Chicago or Cincinnati and got there over huge distances by refrigerated rail. So that's step one. So what this does is the big meat barons, people like Armour and Swift, the meat trust as they were called, they push a lot of local butchers and local slaughterhouses out of business. So they start developing a stranglehold on the market where an increasingly urban population that increasingly has very little to do with animals relies on just going to the supermarket or going to their butcher who now buys from Tyson or, or excuse me, from Swift or Armour. And so they corner that market because they have this basically proto-industrial technology of animal disassembly. Now fast forward about 50 years and a similar technology comes to farming with the advent of uh, confined animal feeding operations, CAFOs or uh, factory farms as they're more commonly known and I think correctly known because de facto what happens on factory farms is you're bringing an industrial model of production, a factory model of production to the rearing of animal life. What this means is that you take chickens, you put them inside sheds for the duration of their life, either to lay eggs or to grow into meat-bearing animals. Same thing goes for hogs. Cows aren't confined for the entirety of their life. They actually often will graze, but then they'll be fed at concentrated feedlots. So you bring this model of the production of standardized life rather than just standardizing death in the slaughterhouse. You create a model of standardized life, mass-produced animal life, which drops costs, right? Creates a standard, ready supply of product for consumers. And so one of the arguments I make in the book, I mean, there's a much longer story to this. This is the Coles Notes version. But one of the arguments I make in the book is that the industry actively not only creates these modes of production, but they create a consumer base. They teach the American consumer to consume extremely high quantities of extremely cheap meat. People might balk and they might say, oh, you know, meat is kind of expensive. But the fact of the matter is that Americans spend very little on food. Americans only spend about 6.4% uh, of per capita GDP on food, which is the lowest number in the OECD. Other countries, people spend a lot more. Americans also eat uh, a truly gargantuan amount of meat. Americans eat about 220 pounds of meat each per year. And that's the direct product of an industry that developed, often with uh, government support in the form of tax breaks, in the form of subsidies for feed crops, in the form of the establishment of the land-grant university model, where there were people at state universities doing research in order to improve the quality or efficiency of production being done by the private sector. So this whole apparatus that involved the state and involved private companies came together in order to 
in order to basically hook Americans on meat. So you talk about the suffering that the animals go through in this system, but there are also negative social effects on the the human workers. Can can you tell us about about what that looks like? Yeah, so look, work at animal facilities is difficult, and it is not the type of work that people, I hesitate to say, choose to do. Most people, given the choice of other forms of employment would not do this work, which is why historically there's such a large proportion of workers on farms and in slaughterhouses are migrant or undocumented populations. And I strongly recommend the work of Vanessa Ribas on this, who's a sociologist and ethnographer who did work at a major packing plant in North Carolina. Also, uh, Timothy Pacherat wrote a book called Every 12 Seconds, which is an ethnography of slaughterhouse work in the Midwest. And they delve much more into this. The point is, the work is gruesome. I've been on slaughterhouse floors. I've waded through blood. I've seen people who every 15 seconds, every 15 seconds, have to make the exact same incision, be it severing, you know, one particular sinew or decapitating an animal or cutting off front trotters with pneumatic shears. It's numbing work. It's done in a cold, brutal environment. It's hard on the body. Their rates of injury are very high. Rates of things like carpal tunnel syndrome and repetitive stress uh, injuries are very high. In fact, there was an Oxfam report that came out a few years ago that showed that workers in Tyson poultry plants were wearing diapers on the line because they weren't given enough bathroom breaks because the line can't slow down. So every everyone's labor is entirely tied to the speed of the line, which leads to truly inhumane work conditions. And th- there's been now this movement in recent times around ethics in changing how animals are treated and just our relationship to, to meat. There's a whole movement around local, organic, free-range animals. Uh, and then there's also the the vegetarian and vegan movements that have picked up a lot of steam recently. What, what are your thoughts on these movements? Do they, do they address these core problems? That's a very good question. So I think that before we get into how you address these problems, I think a lot of credit has to go to animal rights groups and environmental groups and environmental scientists who for a very long time now have been telling us that animal agriculture is unsustainable and highly cruel to laborers and to animals alike. And I think that these people's really tireless work has gotten to a point where this is now starting to be a mainstream conversation, which it wasn't before. So now in terms of addressing this, the reason I spend so much time stressing that American consumers are trained to eat meat is because a lot of people have completely internalized the right to meat and have internalized ethical positions based directly on their consumption habits, right? So if you tell an American or you tell most people, do you support cruelty to animals? And the answer is no. There was a survey done in 2017 by the Sentience Institute, which showed that uh, 95% of Americans claim to care about animal welfare. In fact, well over 40% of Americans claim that they would support shutting down slaughterhouses and factory farms. And yet, 95% of Americans continue to eat animals. And if you tell people, go vegan, we know what most the most common response is. No, stop telling me what to do. I'm not going to go vegan. I don't need your moralizing. 
Or people say, you know, individual choices don't matter. So whether I go vegan or not, the system's going to continue. People will say things like, you know, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. So the pushback to veganism is very strong. And the problem with veganism is that it is the promotion of an individual practice, right? So you're telling disaggregated individuals who, um, you know, as the foodies would have it, vote with their fork three times a day, that they should not buy something, that they should restrict this realm of freedom they have in consumption by not buying things based on a purely normative ethical claim, which is very difficult. So the people who support um, regenerative agriculture or small-scale farms or alternative meat farming, I mean, first of all, they're I would venture to say they're not engaging with the question of animal ethics. They say we treat our animals well and we have happy animals. I mean, the animals are happy until they get their throat gets slit, at which point they're no longer happy animals. But if we push that question aside and get to the broader question of labor and of ecological impact, I mean, labor is an open question. Are laborers treated better at small farms or in alternative food systems? I think it's an empirical question. I think there's no inherent reason why that's the case. Now, are these systems superior ecologically? I think the answer is unequivocally yes, right? Small-scale agriculture, agriculture that involves mixed crops and multiple species is undeniably far superior for the environment than uh, conventional agriculture, which combines conventional monocrop, primarily soy and corn for feed, and then feeds this to these mass-produced animals in these confined operations. The problem with that alternative is that while laudable, I mean, where are you going to get the land, right? If you if Americans eat 220 pounds of meat a year, switching to that system would require a massive expansion of grazing land, which is problematic. So uh, Matthew Hayek at NYU has a paper out about this where he basically says we don't have enough land in the United States to feed everyone with this with happy meat. So even if that model were to be adopted, you're still telling Americans to reduce their consumption of meat by orders of magnitude and also to pay more for meat. So proponents of this of these programs would say, well, yeah, of course, Americans should pay more for a good quality product and they should eat less, which only makes sense until you get to the same problem as the veganism problem. You're telling people to spend more of their hard-earned money and to restrict their consumption which might work for some people. I would venture that it works for people who really care about the environment and or who have a lot of disposable income. But I think it's not a generalizable system. You can't replace factory farming with regenerative agriculture at anything resembling the scale of production and the scale of consumption we have. And so, so that brings us to what could serve as a true replacement, and that's cellular meat. Can, can you tell us what, what exactly is cellular meat and how is it made? Yeah, so there are actually two options, which is plant-based meats, things like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, and cellular agriculture, which is the growing of meat, of muscle tissue and fat tissue, in a formula in vitro based on stem cells extracted from an animal with a biopsy. So these products are, well, we've had plant-based, quote-unquote, meat alternatives for a while. We've had tofu, seitan, tempeh, veggie burgers for a really long time. But companies like Beyond and Impossible, what they've done is I think they've really, they've really cracked the code of the taste and texture and mouthfeel of meat that consumers are looking for. 
with plant-based ingredients. So uh, Impossible mostly uses soy, Beyond mostly uses peas. And they're being really aggressive in their marketing. They're saying, look, we're meat. This is a meat product. Buy us at, you know, buy our products at uh, Carl's Jr., buy our products at Burger King, buy our products in the meat aisle. And that seems to be working. And so what these products basically do is they try to mimic, as I said, taste, texture, mouthfeel of standard meat and also the nutritional profile. So about the same amount of protein, about the same amount of fats, often more sodium because of the nature of the processing. So that's one challenge uh, to the incumbent meat industry that I think is doing extremely well, right? So Burger King has seen its um, sales go up since they introduced the Impossible Burger. Beyond had the most successful IPO of the year. So clearly not just consumers, but investors are seeing something in this space. And you're also seeing the meat industry get interested in this space. So a lot of uh, incumbent meat companies are starting to acquire or invest in plant-based meat makers. And this is both in the United States and abroad in Europe. Cellular agriculture is a technology that's still in the prototype stage. It sounds like science fiction, but it's actually quite basic biology, which is not to say it's easy to make. All it requires is taking a biopsy from an animal and extracting a stem cell, and then feeding that stem cell uh, a growth formula in an environment that mimics an animal body, but without the animal body to have just the pure muscle tissue or fat tissue grow. So you're replicating meat. You're creating a complete genetic analog for meat. So we have a few prototypes. There's The technology still has a long way to go. I can talk about that in a second. But for all intents and purposes, it is meat. It is animal meat, just without the animal and without the slaughterhouse, or without the animal going through the standard animal rearing process. And what this technology promises, or what both these technologies promise, but I think especially cellular agriculture, is they cut the Gordian knot that the both the alternative meat people are facing and that especially the vegan promoted, promotion people are facing, which is you're not asking people to change their consumer habits. You're asking them to buy an analogous product that's produced differently. So you're minimizing switching costs for individual consumers. And I think that this is also, this is the theory under which these companies are laboring, which is that consumers care enough about animals and the environment that if you give them an almost perfect match for what they would buy otherwise, that meets these basic criteria, especially taste and price, that consumers will then make the switch. So you make the switch as easy for people as possible without asking them to abstain from consuming or from buying these extremely expensive niche products that require them to really change their consumption habits. I'm sold on the argument, especially given my research. Americans have been trained to consume in a very specific way. And I think the easiest way to get people to change their consumption habits is to offer them a better alternative. I think there are a lot of problems with this, including what assumptions about human nature we're making, what assumptions about people's responsiveness to normative ethical claims we're making. But I think the proof is in the pudding. Fascinating. I'm, I'm very excited to try this. There have been prototypes, like you said, with chicken, tuna, and beef. So that, that would really transform our environmental systems and how meat is produced. In looking, though, at the future of our social and economic systems, how can this be developed in a way that doesn't create a new what you call commodity regime of concentrated wealth and power around the sustainability of, of this food? How can these new, new technologies be developed in a way that is really equitable from a social and economic perspective? Yeah, that's a, 
absolutely crucial question. That's a lot of what I'm looking at now, and I think people are starting to look at, but not enough. First of all, this is a nascent technology, so I think very few people are actually thinking about the political economy of this, which is really unfortunate, because most of these products are being made by startups. And for the startups to scale, and that means investment in research and development and research in just the capacity to meet demand, requires a lot of money. And the money is coming primarily from venture capital, right? Be it sort of quote-unquote philanthropic investors, so Bill Gates and Leonardo DiCaprio and Richard Branson are investing in this space, but also just from venture capital funds and also from the venture capital arms of major meat industries, right? So Tyson Foods, one of the biggest meat producers in the country, has Tyson Ventures, which is their venture capital arm, and they're investing in this space. This leads to the following problem. If this technology scales and delivers on its promise, and it can actually disrupt, so truly disrupt, so disrupt the business model and ideally disrupt the business model of conventional animal agriculture and ideally put it out of business, that is a huge win for the 10 billion, of an 10 billion animals killed every year. We know that the environmental footprint of these products, be it the Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers of the world or cellular agriculture, is much lower, so much lower, 90-something percent less water use, 90-something percent less land use, considerably diminished greenhouse gas emissions, less energy use. So it's, an, let's say, an animal rights win and an ecological win. But the problem is, who then owns the food we're eating? Right now, we're in a situation where we have extremely concentrated control over the food system. And there's every possibility that these new systems will slot right into that. So you'll have a very small amount of companies controlling the space, the intellectual property or IP being owned by a small amount of companies that large investors are trying to leverage for money. There's no guarantee that this will. these companies will be working to completely minimize or work to minimize their environmental footprint. It's unclear how this addresses labor questions and labor concerns. And it's certainly not an alternative food production system. So in a sense, it's like disruption without really disrupting anything because it slots so cleanly into the existing value chain. So on balance, no matter what happens, I mean, if this technology were to be rolled out and be successful, I think on balance, it's a win. The way we produce meat now is cruel to animals, cruel to labor, and an environmental disaster, and it needs to end. And if these technologies the best way to end it, great. I think that's a win. But I think that there is space for activists, scientists, and especially governments to get involved in this space in order to try to democratize it and try to harness more environmental justice and labor justice and food justice um, wins from what otherwise will just be the private sector trying to make money off a different type of food. And I wrote an article in Jacobin uh, a few months ago in which I, in which I argued that there is, I think, there is a lot of space for federal governments to invest in this technology. I mean, in the United States, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine had a report in the last year of the Obama era about the potential of biotechnology to uh, boost the U.S. economy, and cellular agriculture products were on page three. But then the current administration came in. There's not much movement. There's a lot of um, institutional and regulatory capture by incumbent meat interests. And so the government isn't really willing to invest. I think the government should invest massively so there's some there are 
programs like ARPA-E, for instance, which is aimed at developing clean technologies, I see no reason why there shouldn't be an ARPA-E for food or why the existing systems, so like the USDA, which invests money in R&D and all these land-grant universities that have these meat science and animal science departments, there's all this infrastructure that could be harnessed away from animal agriculture and towards these more sustainable products to help roll it out. But moreover, I think the government should invest in such a way, for instance, by supporting um, research at state institutions, such that the IP would be held in the public trust, or at least the IP would be held by state or public institutions. And then you could farm out production to the private sector, which is, I think, one way of protecting this space from total takeover by venture capital, by finance capital. It's a great recommendation. And on such a fundamental and huge issue and really such a transformative technology and opportunity to really, really change the way we eat in our interaction with with nature. Um, and I really uh, I'm really grateful for all the different dimensions that you've looked into these issues from the political economy perspective to the environmental perspective. Um, how can people learn more about about your research and, and follow you? Do you have a, a website or or? Uh, articles you would point to? Yeah, I mean, that's why I have a website. It's just jandudkovic.com. Can you spell that for those listening? <laughs> so it's a complicated Polish name. It's J-A-N-D-U-T-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z.com. And you can find my work there. But I think just in general, people think of this as this curiosity, but it really has the potential to change the food system. So I really urge you to Google what this technology is, see how it works, and and learn about it and then think about if you're involved already in activism around environmental issues, around food issues, or if you're involved in government at a different level or you work in, be it biology or even animal science at state institutions, think about the place this changing food regime has within the type of activism, the type of thinking about politics and food you're already doing. Because ultimately, I think this technology is going to flourish no matter what. But it can go one of two ways, right? It can be completely corporate, or it can be pulled back a little bit and made to serve the public interest a little bit better. Well, we certainly will be researching that and look forward to your new book. Jan, thank you so much for talking with us today. And thank you all for listening on KTUH. Aloha. Aloha.